episode of Inside Planks, a show where we take members from Alberta's political world, have a quick drink with them, and just kind of talk about what's going on in the world. And today we are stepping out again from the MLA side, and we're not going to the federal like we did last week. This time we're going to be going to a different part. We're going to go to the municipal, but a little broader. So we're going to uh, our main president, uh, Paul McLaughlin. How are you doing today? I'm fantastic. Spring is in the air. Can you feel it? I can feel it. Oh, I was uh, driving home with the windows down the other day. It was gorgeous. I am not going to complain at all. <laughs> it, it actually rained last night. So, yeah, you know, February 21st, 22nd at uh, two in the morning, it rained at my house. Rain, like rain, rain, like spring rains. <laughs> Well, you know, you know what they say, February showers bring March flowers, I think it is. <laughs> and March, March snow, right? I mean, yep. we're due for it. So, But no, it's all good. And definitely, uh, it's nice. I was brushing a horse last night, and 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 he's popping his coat. That's my sign. So. Perfect. And you know what? There's always those small things that kind of tell you springs on the way, and it sounds like it's going that way. So uh, hopefully, we'll keep it there. Um, so just before we get into it, uh, let's talk about what are we uh, drinking today? Sure. You know what? We're going with uh, Hocktail. So, you know, the, the wonderful town of Remby has a, has a population of about 2,500 people, but just the right size to actually have a microbrew, which is, I think, actually a sign that uh, Remby is going to be 50,000 people uh, in the next 20 years. So if you can have a microbrew, that means you've gotten somewhere. So Hocktail is a fantastic little, little brewery that... Uh, Right off the highway there, and you know what? It's actually quite the hot spot. The folks that are doing the the big uh, uh, Harley drives and the bike, the motorcycle folks pop in there. Um, they have a great little growler set up there, a little little bit uh, little credits and stuff, and fantastic beer. And they've done a, a bit of a beer snob, and they have nailed. Um, I've got the rye milk stout. I'm not sure if you got it on your end, but uh, fantastic. So no, sounds good. I picked up on my end. I grabbed the. Uh clean or the golden ales what it's called so just the light nice. one that's a good one too absolutely and I, i'm just looking at it. it's got a nice golden color i mean you can't complain about that at all and i'm excited to give it a shot so cheers to you and we'll uh, get right into cheers it to you. i'm gonna go old school in a can so hey nothing wrong with that Ooh, oh yeah that's really nice yeah and this is with a bit of rye in it so it's got that spiciness like a saison but it's in a stout so really nice really good See, I haven't really gone to the stouts yet. More what I drink when I'm doing it socially is I'll have a scotch, I'll have a whiskey, and beer is sort of a newer thing to me. But you know what? It might be time to try it. Now maybe my palate's been horizoned. It's expanded a little bit. So who knows? <laughs> We're nine episodes in. So uh, I guess I got to start trying some new stuff. <laughs> Your palate is maturing. Good for you. Yes, absolutely. So... I just want to get into this really quick because a lot of people, uh, they probably know what RMA is, but a little bit about you. I know we've talked before, but the one thing that just boggles my mind is how busy of a man you are because you are the president of the rural municipalities of Alberta. You are the Reeve of Pinoca County. You're on the board of governors for Old College. You've worked in the environmental sector. I mean, tell me if I'm missing anything, but that alone is quite a bit. <laughs> Well, and I, we, we, my wife and I farm horse hay, but uh, it, it, you know, that just means that I, I make a lot of square bales three times a year. So my farming is a little lighter than some, and we have a bit of livestock. But yeah, I keep pretty busy, and you know, I, I think that the uh, 
Um, the politics was a hobby that's starting to uh, uh, take over part of my life, but at the same time, I, I do find some of the skills transferable. I've been I've been corporate uh, environmental consulting guy in the past, and and so some of those business experience and the, and really specifically the energy experience has been a huge benefit to uh, to both positions as Reva Penoka County and RMA. And I think that uh, it's it's interesting how transferable uh, that knowledge base is. Uh, you know, I've worked I've worked on Trans Mountain, I've worked on XL, I've worked on Average line three. So I've got that resource experience, but I've also worked on wind power and solar power. And in fact, actually, the sun's high enough right now. I'm actually talking to you on solar power in my office too. My wife and I have cool. built an office on our farm, and and uh, and it runs off of of wind and and solar, and it's actually a net positive building. And it's an experiment that we wanted to do because we still need gas, so I still need propane. Uh, I you know it's not passive passive net zero, but uh, <laughs> at the same time, it's a nice little cozy space actually to work within. And that's really cool to hear that you've got that balance there because it just shows that there's still that need for the oil and gas sector, but there's still sort of that transition piece. But if you can make it a little bit more efficient either way, I mean, absolutely. Why not? Yeah, I was raised by a Scottish accountant. So anytime I can save a dollar is a good thing, right? So. <laughs> for sure. So what was it about that time in the environmental sector and working with the energy industry that really led you down the path of politics? Because a lot of times you don't really see that crossover, but for you, it seems to be a natural fit. And, and, you know, it's really that pragmatic view that I think that, uh, you know, a lot of the work I had to do was bridge the gap between between uh, the, the landowners or, or, or stakeholder groups, uh, indigenous values on, on large pieces of land, especially when I worked on linear projects. So we're trying to marry the environmental uh, assessment pro- pro- portion to the socioeconomic. And so it, it really does fit. I, I think that it's really that extension of what is the local benefits? What's the long-term benefits? It's that public interest conversation, I think, is a huge benefit. Um, and, you know, the birds, bunnies, and bears, to be quite honest, um, you know, counting the number of, of rare plants and those kind of pieces, that stuff is quite easy to, to, to address. It's really those public values that's the most exciting part. And I think that's what politics provides is that, that uh, the, the more difficult part is really bridging uh, human interests, human values into a large scale project. So that's the exciting part. And so I love solving problems. Um, and, and I think that that's probably what's most exciting to me. And I have such an awesome team behind me, both at my Pinocchio County Council and RMA. We've got a top-notch group of folks and our board is, is kick butt. So it's nice working with some good people too. That's a huge advantage as well. Absolutely. And especially when it comes to something as big as RMA, I don't think people really understand how large that is because you have almost 70 municipalities under your umbrella. And it's hard to get that sort of collaboration between that many different in- or groups that have that many different interests and trying to get them all going the same direction. So I can only imagine what that's been like. So now that you've been in that president role for a while, because you were with them as a director for a number of years, but now that you're there as the president, have how have you found that's changed or has it really? Well, I don't think it has. I think that the you know the root of it all is we we represent a um, a fantastic group of people that are really driven by their their community's values. They're representatives. You're truly a representative of your community. And RMA is just one level up, but at a broader scale. And I think that the the every municipality still represents their their sovereignty. So you know we speak, we advocate on behalf, but I don't speak on behalf. If that makes sense, yes. um, they all have their own message, and and that's an important part of the conversation because. Just imagine, I mean, we're the only association, association that's border to border to border. 
So 70% of the roads in this province are under municipal governance. 60% of the bridges are under municipal governance. We are actually not even comparable to any other province as far as the rural exposure we have on the land base. No one's even close. Uh, and the other, so basically 80% of this province is covered by rural municipalities. The other 20% are national parks. So you just imagine that we have touch points on everything. And I think that that's uh, the unique unique piece of it. Um, at the same time, my, my constant phrasing is, is that post-COVID, uh, as we're moving through this, we've learned a few things. First of all, the sense of community. Uh, the second of all, we can do things remotely, uh, but more badly than anything, I want to have meetings in person too once in a while because we're losing that touch with folks. But the solution at the back end of, of COVID is going to be rural Alberta. It's going to be food security. It's going to be energy. It's water. Uh, it's the fact that I think that our agriculture sector is really going to rise to the occasion and using technology and otherwise, we're really going to be able to, to find out the, the whole truth of it all is we need to be able to feed ourselves. We need to have food sovereignty. Uh, and even going down the domestic energy conversation, uh, energy sovereignty is a very important part of us. And that whole suite of energy, whether it's renewable or non-renewable, we need to start having those conversations. Well, and there's so much coming down the line too, because now that we're talking about, okay, it's I think like 2030 as it's 20, 30 years down the road, but it's 10 years away, less than 10 years away now. It's 2021. What am I talking about? But I'm just thinking about that in context. Okay, we're starting to work on this hydrogen plan that in 2030, we're going to start being more active by 2050. We're going to start bringing in trillions of dollars or whatever the industry is going to be worth. And we're also looking at geothermal. So it's it's a really exciting time to see what's going to be happening here. But at the same time, again, we have to acknowledge that there's just it's not an end, there's a transition. So what does that transition look like for you? Because obviously you've had experience on the environmental and the energy side. So how do you compete those balances? Because that seems to be something that a lot of people are either you're for or you're against. There's not really that bridge in the middle like you were talking about. Well, as a, as a business guy, there's a couple of conversations that tie to it is that $120 billion of, of net exports is actually tied to the oil and gas industry. So you want cash flow. Anybody that's owned a business, cash flow. Actually, anybody right now, what's your biggest concern right now? Cash flow. Cash flow. So, so you want to have cash flow. And so, you know, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You need to realize that you've got this, this engine, this low carbon engine that you can utilize and leverage to, for the transition. That's the first part. Uh, second of all, it is a transition. So it's not something that's going to occur right away. And and you got you to admit that Albertans are, we lead from the front. Uh, and, and sometimes we can be a little bit late adopter Albertans. We're a bit skeptical, you know, but once Albertans take a hold of something, watch out. Like we, I remember the stats from the late 90s. We actually had one of the lowest per capita home computer uh, ownership. This is in the late 90s. And by, by 2000, we had the highest in Canada. Like we're just, that's how we work. We're cautious, we're business-minded, we make these decisions. And I think that the fact is, is that this entire conversation is a mass balance equation. So the mass balance equation is tied to this. We need energy, energy X. We also need to, to start to create a low carbon future, which is part of a modifier of X. The fact is, in order for us to get to Z, which is that ideal world, it's going to take time, it's going to take money, and it's going to take know-how. Now, first of all, time, we can make all the time we want if we if we understand to make that mass balance equation. We make reasonable decisions. Second of all, we need money. So we cannot, we got to make sure that we keep this engine going, this, this, this ability to leverage, to create this energy, to actually replace the energy if we have to. And I think ultimately what we have in Alberta is an entrepreneurial spirit. We need to leverage what we have best. Our biggest resource we have is Albertans. And uh, don't mess with these people. They will get stuff done. Stay out of their way. You know Albertans. Um, just stay out of our way. Tell us, tell us what the rules are and we'll work within the rules and let's get it done. Well, and I think you touched on a very good point is the one way I've kind of always thought about it is 
Albertans, when it comes to whether it be entrepreneurialism or anything else, it's once we're in, it's it's all like whole assed. Like you don't half-ass anything. It's either you're doing it all or nothing. So that's just one thing that, I mean, that is one thing that really sets us apart. I think that's an awesome part about being here. And it doesn't really matter what ideology you have. Everybody really follows suit with that. So I think that's, yeah, no, I think that's a great way of looking at it. Um, but kind of tying into the oil and gas sector, obviously RMA, there's a huge thing that came out this week and we got the update on what the oil and gas property taxes was. It's up to $245 million that's been unpaid. Uh, last year is at 173. And uh, that's just a staggering number. What like what do you make of that? Well, it is. And, and, you know, I'll use the word crisis. And I think there's there's two pieces to it, too. And again, you know, I'll, I'll just keep picking up on my cash flow conversation. So municipalities can't deficit budget. So so we're, we're zero budget, zero based budget. So we can't deficit budget. So unpaid taxes become a cash flow crunch. And, and we have to actually look for other mechanisms to, to accommodate that um, if companies are late in paying or not paying at all. And, and so we don't have the the mechanisms available to us to actually pursue people that aren't paying taxes. And, and regrettably, 57% of the companies that are operating on a landscape haven't paid their taxes. So we're looking for a reasonable way to deal with this. And, and our normal procedures are, if I don't pay my taxes, which isn't great as the Reeve of Pinoca County, but let's say I did that. <laughs> let's say I went rogue and the Reeve of Pinoca County is not paying his taxes. Um, then there's mechanisms in place where, where eventually it would actually lead down the path to actually having a seizure of my land they would go to judicial sale, and then I would actually, the taxes would be paid and I'd get the remainder after after that sale. That's the normal process. Now, that being said, uh, I'm an, I've been elected leader for 13 years. I've never gone down this road, so I've never actually been involved in that process, but that's historically in front of us. So as it relates to oil and gas, we don't have those levers because a few parts to that, um, the oil and gas facilities are just surface rentals on top of the land, so they don't actually own the land. And so we can't actually pursue those assets in a normal process. And, and the problem is, is that's known in the industry. Um, it's known in the industry. We don't have the mechanisms to actually, you know, put into full force uh, the legal capability of, of dealing with the unpaid taxes. And then that's been taken advantage of. And we're totally aware. I mean, we live and breathe oil and gas. I got three walls on my land. I've been raised and in, in, in been in the oil and gas industry my entire life. I was raised by uh, my father was in the oil and gas industry. We're in it. Um, at the same time, you know, it's this whole conversation around what happens with these unpaid taxes is it comes down to our ratepayers. And, and the problem with that discussion is that our ratepayers just are not interested in paying someone else's taxes. Uh, they want to support the industry. Uh, they they want to make sure that we're getting the job done. But they want to make sure we provide the services to make sure the oil and gas industry gets to market. But they definitely don't want to be paying for their taxes. And ultimately, if this continues the way it is, uh, it does become a conversation on that cost gets offset to the ratepayers. And at the same time, we start having a very honest viability conversation around some municipalities that I represent. So, and one of the things you had mentioned in a interview that was separate from this is that there's a loophole that's sort of existing within the tax bracket for oil and gas. So could you maybe touch on what that is a little bit? Well, so yeah, so the loophole is, is ultimately we cannot use our normal uh, seizures, not the right word, but our normal remedies 
for, for, for pursuing unpaid taxes. So we don't have any tools available to us. Um, we, if I put a lien on an asset, so if I put a lien on a pipeline that hasn't paid taxes, again, that pipeline doesn't actually own the land. So that goes on Sally and Joe's farmland. So if I put a lien on that, then I can't go to the feed store because I've just put a lien on my neighbor's yard for not paying taxes in Pinocchio County. How do you think my neighbor is going to think that Pinocchio County is putting liens on property um, as a remedy for unpaid taxes? So again, and, and, and people have asked me too, they said, well, why has this always been a loophole? I've been elected elected leader for 12 years. This doesn't happen. The industry pays their taxes. So obviously this is tied to the, the economy. At the same time, there's definitely distressed. And at the same time, there's a there's a few operators that are really just taking advantage of the loophole. That's the only thing I can I can explain because we actually have payment plans. Most of the municipalities I represent have payment plans. We're compassionate. We understand. If you walk in my door and you say, I can't pay my taxes right away, everybody gets a plan. We can work it out. You know, we're, we're nothing if not passionate, uh, compassionate, but, but there's a bunch that just aren't, aren't paying at all. And that's regrettable. For sure. And just thinking from like a policy perspective here, when, if that were to be closed, let's say hypothetically tomorrow, the Alberta legislature decides, okay, that loophole has gone. Everybody there's, it doesn't matter. You have to pay it. What does that look like? Is that something that we need to sort of grandfather in, or is that something that because now it's at that $245 million range that this is something that needs to be fixed as opposed to just, okay, it's over, done, fresh start. Well, and, and you know what? I mean, I think I want to promote uh, like a, a more conciliatory response. So I want to promote them to want to come to our door and say, hey, <laughs> we want to work out a plan to pay our taxes. That's a way better way to deal with any of this. So I regret it, this even having to be in the media. I regret that that we even have to do like RMA doing a press release is almost some, the last thing we ever want to do. We want to work out. A, we want to work out a solution to the problem. And the problem is that this problem is three years old now. And it's getting worse. So we that's not how we do business. We're we'll sit down and we'll work stuff out. So this gets people through the door. I think that's the critical, critical thing. We need a lens on this and we need to spark people going, okay, let's work something out. Things are tough for my company uh, or our organization. And let's let's work on a plan. Let's let's get together and, and, and map this out. And I think that's the, the important part about all this. I'd rather not create new regulations or new rules. I'd rather have people that are working on the landscape come and make a deal with, with the municipalities that I represent. And of course, and it goes way beyond to just between the company and the municipality, because behind every company are people that work for them. So and the last thing that we want during a pandemic, during an economic crisis, like when right now is people, more people not at the job site. Um, and ultimately, that means less money going into the economy, less food on people's tables. Like there's just a huge trickle effect that you can't just like you said, you can't just do a stopgap and it's over at that. So I hope it does get resolved because $245 million, that's a lot. And I mean, the other thing too, I don't think people really realize is that we had this talk at the beginning of COVID where there's talk about municipalities being able to run a deficit just because this is such an unprecedented time, but that never ended up coming. So municipalities are still being able to carry their end of the financial burden. Yeah, and, and, and the complexity is raised, but we have reserves. So I have reserves, but I have to use reserves for capital replacement. So um, so people people view them as surplus and it's like a it's like a, a slush fund and it's not. So I have in Pinocchio County, I have 160 bridges. So every bridge replacement's a million dollars. So I have a $160 million liability in Pinocchio County, and I have capital reserves to replace that. And my capital reserves are about 36 million. So even my capital reserves aren't enough to replace all my bridges. Thankfully, I don't need to replace all my bridges at once. 
but I have to build up this capital reserve account to replace all my assets because included with that, I have 5,000 kilometers of road. And so that demand will never go away. Like that is always there. And so if I'm using my reserves to, to backfill for unpaid taxes, I'm pulling away from that future capital replacement. And, and, I, and you're exactly right. You know, this is about people, this is about jobs, and this is about, about, about ensuring that we continue on with the partnership. The fact is, is that it cannot be, it's not even close to deniable, 60% of my tax base in Pinocchio County is the oil and gas industry. We are truly partners with the oil and gas industry in the development of rural Alberta, undeniably. And that partnership hasn't changed because a few people haven't, just because of a few bad eggs. I still I still support the oil and gas industry and the people I represent 100% are all in on the oil and gas industry. So this is just a few bad eggs, but they're but they're egg, those eggs owe us a lot of money right now too. <laughs> Yeah, that always seems to be the way it is. It's the few that kind of ruin it for the ones that are actually doing their part and saying, you know what? Yeah, it sucks, but we got to do what we got to do, right? And everybody's circumstances are different, but it's just something that needs to be resolved. And hopefully it is soon because $245 million, that's not going to get replaced in an overnight. Yeah, it's amazing. And like, if you average it out, it's uh, 3.6 million per municipality. Uh, it's not all of them, though. So the problem with averaging, that doesn't really count. Um, so when you look at a few, there's a few worth that have 20 million, 10 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you start looking at between, I think, the average, the ones that are owed money. So I think uh, we had 100% feedback. I think the ones that are owed money, uh, it could be 10 to 20% of your actual uh, t- tax base. That's that changes operations. It changes staffing. It's a pretty significant impact on on most of the municipal operations. And the one thing I'm thinking about as well is just I know very recently last year we were talking about how back when former minister Tracy Allard was uh, running municipal affairs that there was the temporary measures put in place that three year tax uh, vacation I guess is what you might call it that might not be the right term so I apologize if it isn't um, but. Has there been any sort of follow-up with that? Because I know, obviously, uh, Minister McIver's just come in and he's on the interim basis and he's trying to run two ministries, but has there been follow-up on this? Well, there has. And I think that the, so the two pieces to that were, uh, were the assessment model review process, which was the one that kind of was heated uh, so close to last year about this time, right? Um, so, so that conversation uh, isn't parked, but, but the actual resolution of it won't be for three years from now. Uh, the other piece of that was a 25% reduction in the shallow gas well that was held close. And then there's the, the drilling tax, which is a stimulus piece too, as well. Um, so Minister McIver has been great. And I guess that's the other uh, conversations, you know, we are meeting with the, with the three ministers that are, that are attached to this, which is energy environment and, and municipal affairs. So we are meeting with them in the, in the next month or so. And that's critically important to, to sit down and start to hammer out some solutions to this. So I think that, um, you know, again, there's been parts to stimulate the, the industry and those, those pieces. Uh, so we're asking for a few real simple things um, and, and really, this is where it's solution based that that I think that in the in the province of Alberta, because these well sites, um, they're they're a geogra- geographic entity. Right. So this is well site XX. These things, some of these change hands a lot, um, like a lot. Like I own three on my farm. Well, I don't own. I have three on my farm. I don't own them. They change names quite a bit. Uh, not a ton, but I think one of my main wells in my place is probably under their eighth company since I've lived here in 18 years. So, so they change names, and so that that transaction. I think it's an important part of the industry is moving moving assets around. That is consolidation, expansion, consolidation. Typical part of a cyclical industry. But what we're asking for is that well needs to have the payment of property taxes to be completed prior to transferring that well from company A to B. 
That's one of the first solutions that we have. We also are asking that that any company that's operating in Alberta has to show that they pay their municipal taxes. And, and, and those are two very simple metrics. And, and, and I'll say this facetiously, but I asked a bunch of CEOs, how quickly could you have uh, unpaid tax data available to the GOA to ensure that the company hasn't paid or not? And, and a couple of them joked to me and they said, it'd take me about an hour, but that's only because I probably went for lunch. Um, th- you know, They have these numbers on their desk. Um, this is part of their business. And you can imagine, depending on the municipality, this is one of the number one um, concerns to the municipality outside of COVID. It's that really that this, this financial transaction that's not occurring. So, so I think those solutions are there. We just need to bridge the gap and, and we need to find solutions. And, and maybe there's other solutions we don't know, but our members have come up with these solutions. And I think they're pretty solid and I think they're very pragmatic. Because again, it doesn't mean they need to be paid in full. They need to have some sort of system in place, place to pay your taxes. That's the critical conversation. And the one I think I saw from you, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the one I saw was something that when a oil company goes to AER to apply for a license to be able to drill or to do a well, they have to show that that's been paid. Is that, I mean, that seems like a very pragmatic and fair way about going about it. Yeah, I, I think it's a simple metric. And I, and I think that, uh, you know, I, I treat I treat property taxes as a as a public interest, public trust conversation. Um, I think they're the same as an environmental liability. Personally, a guy coming from an environmental background, I mean, it's it's a public good conversation. So those taxes pay for the ancillary infrastructure that provides the ability from oil and gas to go from A to B. And so, when those don't get paid, that stresses that system. And so, I think it's critically important to treat this as a public trust, public public interest conversation, and make sure that those are just one of those metrics that should be attached to that that entire conversation on the operation of of not just those facilities, but that company too as well. And as I said, you know, they just need to show that they've got a relationship with their local municipality and, and working working through the issues they have completely. And, and as I said, I have yet to meet a municipality in the province that won't won't be compassionate, won't work something out. Yeah, because ultimately burning bridges isn't going to do anybody any good here. So, no, I totally get what you're saying. That's um, not how we, and you know what? We, I come from a group of people that handshakes their word, right? Their word is their bond. That's that. That's seriously how we do stuff in rural Alberta. That really is. That still exists. It still exists. For sure. And yeah, I'm, I don't know what else to say other than really this needs to be resolved. It's something that's going to impact not just programming. It's going to impact everyday Albertans. It's not just going to be, okay, it's this particular group. It's anybody that lives in a rural municipality. And for that matter, even to some extent, uh, larger municipalities, they're going to be impacted. So hopefully that this can be resolved. But speaking of other things, so just to change direction of things that can impact. Uh, so the province of Alberta is still talking about going forward with the whole changing to the policing system here in Alberta, police funding modeling, and even to the greater extent of doing the Alberta police force and severing the contract with the RCMP. Uh, I guess just on a high level, what are your thoughts on how that's been going? Well, I think that, uh, you know, the the conversation I think is picked up and, you know, we had a session last Thursday uh, with AUMA and RMA and uh, AUMA actually, uh, actually had forced it, pushed it forward and actually they, they invited us to come and it was a fantastic session it really started to just have that general conversation around 
policing in general, uh, dealing with all the issues tied to that. What is it? What do you have to think about in a transition? And we're ultimately waiting for this report at the end of April that's hopefully going to answer a few of those questions. So, um, you know, a lot of the conversation I'm having with the folks that I represent is is that they'd like to they'd like to know they'd like to know the facts. They want to know the numbers. Um, they also want to, at the same time start talking about that that other critical conversation around how do you make rural policing more successful and and what are the pieces to deal with and and my 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 common mantra is i can't deal with the report that i haven't seen yet so it's hard for my people to even reflect on on the issues of cost and transitioning and all those other pieces and and how do you deal with that piece but what i can talk about is is the is the critical issues of poverty and housing i can talk about substance abuse uh mental health issues and at the same time uh to me one of the biggest critical things is the justice system so those are pieces that aren't really part of the policing or maybe they are but it's great that this dialogue is occurring um, it's great that we're actually having this discussion uh, and this discussion has been going on but it's really bringing it to a head and i think that a lot of the folks from AUMA and rma are really just starting to say hey let's start talking about our justice system let's start talking about the revolving door let's start talking about substance abuse and trying to at least have this discussion in that space um and as we wait for the report i think we're having good dialogue uh boots on the ground sort of conversations so the one thing that's kind of there's so many different perspectives on this on whether we should be staying with RCMP, whether we should be going to uh, a brand new provincial police force. I think just with my personal experiences, having come from the justice side of things, it's very complex. It's not a simple matter of okay, are we just going to have one police force instead of another? There's transition, there's jurisdiction, there's rewriting legislation to be able to accommodate all that. Um, the one thing that I kind of think about is how is this going to impact? Because I know the funding side, and again, we know we haven't seen the report, but the funding that's going to be coming because there are recent changes to it. And if we lose the RCMP, then it's going to be all Alberta paying for it. And foreseeably, it's going to be passed down to municipalities. So uh, tied in with the oil and gas uh, unpaid taxes, that's going to be, I think it'd be fairly difficult to maintain the uh, balanced budget, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and it's it, it's interesting to be in Alberta now, where everything. Well, we used to always talk about money. I remember back in the in the uh, the big spike in two thousand ten or something, and people were just talking about how much their houses are all of a sudden worth. You know, so people talk a lot when when things are oh, you got lots of money, and our my house is doubled in price, and and now. Uh, now we're at the other end of the spectrum going, geez, I don't know, like, <laughs> do we have enough money to do this? And so, so this, these pressures are, are, are still on us. And I think that, uh, um, you know, every conversation right now is really talking about budgeting. It's about uh, making sure that we're, we're spending money the correct way and having those discussions. And, and maybe this report will come out with that discussion, but you're right, building from you, can you approve on what's there? Um, at the same time, one of the great conversations I had with someone is, can you start using ancillary services and building that? Because one of the conversations from rural Alberta is, is that there's definitely a huge underserved part of this province. Regardless of what you do with the justice system, I'm far away from, from a police station. No matter what, I'm going to be far away from a police station. There's some people in the north that are three hours away from what would be called normal services. So you imagine the time between an event or a situation and that three-hour gap is is terribly significant. So it's really dealing with those underserved is really where where money may not be the conversation, but it's finding the best service 
for those areas might be the most critical. And it may not be a money discussion. It might be a service discussion. And so I, th- I think the best part about all this, although I, I at times I saw it as a distraction from COVID, um, I'm starting to not see it that way. I'm starting to see, wait a minute, this is the time to have this discussion, to deal with the underserved and deal with these critical issues. You know what? We're all stuck on Zoom right now. Let's solve some problems. And maybe <laughs> this is the time to do it, right? Yeah. And hopefully everything can go forward because you're absolutely right. If you are three hours away from any sort of vital services, that has a direct impact on the quality of your life and your safety at the very end of the day. So no, regardless of what the outcome is, that is something that definitely needs to be addressed. Um, So, and one thing you would kind of, again, I'll switch gears again, just because I'm loving this conversation. I can go a thousand different ways with this, but uh, the one thing that I wanted to talk a little bit about, and this is just a policy nerd to me, is the ICF and the IDP uh, deadlines that are coming up. So for those that aren't familiar, it's the intermunicipal collaboration framework and the intermunicipal development plans. Uh, Essentially what it is, it's just any municipalities or rural municipalities that have a border common border with one another. It's for, it's making them work together to try and come up with a common plan going forward. And what's sort of been the difference is that in the past, it was voluntary unless you're a member of a growth board like the EMDH or the uh, Calgary version. And now it's become mandatory. So how has that uh, impacted, for example, I guess we'll start with you with Pinoca. What has that been like for you? You know, it's been great. And, and I think that uh, it becomes a bureaucratic exercise when you deal with, with your local rurals. So me having an ICF, inter- Intermunicipal Collaboration for Lacombe County, it's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> like, it's not that complex, <laughs> right? You're like, I don't know. What do you got? What do you got? Like, it's not and the same with Wetaskiwin and Camrose. So, so that's been pretty straightforward. And even with the towns, I think that we've we come to some practical solutions and we and some and some pragmatic solutions and come up with some great agreements and and that's and some of that's built upon relationships some of that's history um you know if you would have tried to do this 10 years ago with different councils it could have been horrible there's so much personality tied to these type of discussions yeah. you can imagine and so you know you're trying to make a deal with something in fact actually to tell you just how it worked the reason why Pinoca county was successful in both our icfs is i wasn't involved with either of them so <laughs> i was completely eliminated from the conversation on purpose because I'm bull in a China shop, right? So if you can't tell, I like to talk and I'm loud. And so <laughs> I'm not a great guy maybe at that situation. So anyways, and it's great. Like the, they got together and they solved it and they, they went through that. And so, you know, for the most part, you know, the numbers we're look, looking at, I think 95% are, are completed to date, which is actually exceptional. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're in place the, you know, they, there's, they've got some great agreements. They've, they've, in many cases, what they did, they've done is just basically documented the existing relationship as it stands now. Uh, in some cases, they've looked at new deals. So um, one of the pieces that's tied to that, there's a few that have large gaps and that just, you know, some of them might even get to the arbitration eventually. We don't know. Um, they're working through those pieces and you can never, never say never, right? The negotiation can sometimes, uh, you know, something could be signed at the 12th hour at the 12th day or something. But um the hard part of this is there's always a fiscal piece to it. And so when you get these multiple pressures on your, your adjacent rural um, and the and the small urbans will feel it too, the, the pinch is on. And so those deals are predicated on a certain level of assessment or cash flow. Um, and 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 when that starts to get squeezed, these agreements start, you start looking at a situation that maybe some municipalities might have to go, they all have shotgun clauses in them and you may have to redraft based on fiscal realities. So that's the scary part to me is that, that you're negotiating these in good faith. Everybody 
is is planning their future on it. And then this huge financial contraction is probably the biggest risk to any of the ones that have been signed so far. And the one, I mean, the one that comes to my mind off the top of my head is kind of what's happening in Grand Prairie, because unfortunately it looks like they're going the direction that they're going to have to go to arbitration once April 1 comes around, which, I mean, obviously it, it you don't want to hear that. It You want to be able to settle it outside of the arbitrator's office. So we'll see what happens with that. But I guess for the average everyday Albertan, what is this impact going to have on them, if any? Well, I think that the uh, for the most part, a lot of them are, have pulled together. They provided uh, balanced solutions to the fiscal realities of usually it's usually it's the adjacent urban that has centers or, or service centers, so rec facilities or cultural facilities or or other uh, ancillary services. So it's actually solidified uh, that funding from that perspective, and it made it more more transparent. So I, I think the that like I said, if you really think about it, like we're talking hundreds of these because you imagine you got to have every agreement with every adjacent bordering rural, including the ones in, in like we're talking hundreds. And the fact is, is that when you're looking at maybe 10 like go to arbitration, it's actually been a great success. And I think it's uh, it really votes well, I think, for the for the average Albertan. And you're going to have these situations that may or may not, you know, April 1st might seem far away right now. But uh, I'd be surprised if, if if there isn't some really good deals being made and good agreements being made before April 1st. Arbitration is a it's kind of a lose lose. You go in and you you agree upon the outcomes of what that decision maker makes. And that can be risk to both parties. For sure. And not only are you sort of risking not getting what you want, but you're risking possibly a damaged relationship at the end of the day, which in this sort of world, you need to have that positive relationship because you're going to be bordering with them for ever, really. So you want to make sure that you have that good balance, especially when it comes to watching, because you, like you said, we're going to have to deal with roads, we're going to have to deal with bridges and anything that does sort of connect. Um and speaking of money, I guess I'm not sure when this will air. It might be before budget, might be after budget, but very quick, I guess. What are your thoughts on what budget 2021 might have in store or what would you like to see? Well, I, you know, I think that, uh, I, you know, I think I, I want to see austerity and I want all the money we used to get. So isn't that what everybody's asking for? Right. So <laughs> I want to, I want a balanced budget and I want you to maintain the same funding levels you've had in the past. So, so, I mean, to be realistic, I think, I think we're expecting a, a tough budget. Um, I think that because of the, the uh, situation we're in because of COVID, uh, I would have expected to be a tougher budget. This is just my speculation. I think COVID's required them to look at municipalities and the funding thereof to be a bit of a stimulus piece. Um, and so I would expect it to be less tough than they want it to be, if that makes sense. Yep. Uh, so I'm, I'm expecting it to hurt. Um, I'm not expecting it to destroy us. Um, I'm expecting it to, the long game is such that I expect that I think Alberta is really going to be a different place going forward. And, and I think that that's going to be just come a part of our fiscal reality as both all levels of government in the province of Alberta. So I, I think that uh, we know what's coming and I think that we'll be prepared for it and have to make the changes thereof. Uh, but, but it's going to change services. It's going to change uh, what's being done in this province. It's going to change uh, undeniably how we do business. And maybe not next year, but we'll we'll have it'll be a different world as we move through this this uh, uh, pretty much extreme deficit that we're dealing with overall as a province. Um, we're all gonna someone has to pay it somewhere, right? So eventually, yep. it has to come from somewhere. Yeah, and I don't think anybody that when they signed up to be a uh, provincial or municipal politician the last round that they're expecting to deal with this. So anybody who is running in the next set of elections, absolute props to them. It takes a very special kind of person to be able to put their foot for or their hat forward, especially in these days. So 
absolute credit to them. Uh, I guess on that note, I'm assuming you're probably running for Reeve again. Uh, when right, well, I, yeah, I think I had to throw my my name in the hat just by being president. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and 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 you know what? Uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you too. I think that um, um, you, you know, I think that in if it wasn't for the crisis, quite literally the crisis we're in, I think that that's probably why I, I I've just made that shift in the pivot to stay uh, both in municipal politics and even to run as president because um, I, I think that there's a challenge there and a need for a steady hand and 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 really looking at it from a teamwork standpoint. So uh, so th- that truly is, I think, what attracted me. As odd as that sounds, like I, you know, the guy likes the guy's got a, a blood for punishment, but I do see some amazing things and I see some disruptions coming that I think we can guide us through. And I think that uh, um, I think it's important. But you know, you, your message is is well said. This is uh, can you just imagine? So if you do the, you do the thoughts in your head that someone put their name in the hat uh, four years ago last October. No one would have even envisioned uh, this world we're in right now. And, and you know, are you ready for that? Because because the, the sad thing is, is I think that it's going to be just as tough for the next four years, uh, because we're going to deal with all the ramifications of the changes to society, uh, COVID, whenever COVID does end, as well as the fiscal constraints that we're dealing with, is, is going to be, it's going to stress, it's going to be stressful on a lot of people. And it's going to be, but at the same time, it's, I, th- I hope it just, I think we'll rise to the, to the occasion. I think Albertans can do that. I think we can, we can get stuff done and get it done quickly and get it done right. That's how we do stuff i feel like that could just be plastered on a travel alberta banner alberta's albertans get things done or something like that it just it just rings too true but you've been very generous with your time paul i just want to say thank you very much for having or coming on it's been a pleasure and uh we'll absolutely have you again on anytime appreciate it well thanks a lot aaron and and, uh, safe travels and appreciate your time and anytime sounds good you take care cheers thanks we'll see ya (laughs) cheers